Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are covering a story called Blued Moon by Connie Willis. This story came out in 1984 in Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine. Uh, it's been a real, it was a real pleasure to read, I'll tell you what. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we love Connie Willis here. I think everybody knows that. We've been slowly going through her science fiction or speculative fiction Christmas stories. We'll have another one of those coming out this year because she's got enough of them to keep us going for a really long time. And that's been a a really just enjoyable and refreshing uh, treat to get to do once a year. And well, to get it to do it twice this year is really awesome. And the reason that we are doing two Connie Willis stories this year and We'd happily do more, but the reason we're doing this episode is that it was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. So we want to say a huge thank you to that Patreon supporter. We love getting these commissioned episodes. We love doing Connie Willis, and getting the commissions is uh, a huge help for us here at the network. Yeah, thank you so much. And as Glenn said, we love reading Connie Willis. I hope we get to read a lot more of her in the future. She's such a delight to read, and this story is so classically Connie Willis. It's on the surface, a light story and kind of bubbly and fun, but there are some real crunchy topics she's onto uh, in the telling of this story. And I won't say too much more about it now because Connie Willis is a writer who really writes for the pleasure of her readers in, in the way that popular writers do, that there's something to engage with on a deeper level, but the surface story is so much fun that you can just enjoy trip that the plot takes you on. And that's how I want to kind of continue this podcast. So Glenn, you're doing the recap. Why don't we just get right into the story here today? Right. As you say, this is a story that is just a ton of fun. I mean, it's a rom-com. It's really, it's a rom-com of the Shakespearean science fiction variety, but it is a rom-com. And so it's really a story about various characters having, uh, I would say, hilariously improbable interactions on their way to falling in love or getting their just desserts or having their plans thwarted or, you know, all of the above at the same time, right? That's the formula. That's the genre that we're working in here. And it really is a a timeless and uh, maybe, I guess, genre-less, we'll say, in terms of like thinking about publishing categories, storytelling mode. And, and, and you can set this anywhere, anytime, right? There's a, a reason that you can stage Much Ado About Nothing in its original early modern context, or you can stage it in the First World War, or, you know, just in Joss Whedon's backyard if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, but there is an SF element that is going to provide the the catalyst and the explanation for all of the zany rom communists here in this story. And Willis gives us this in the form of an epigram at the beginning of the story. And this epigram is a press release from Moen Chemical, which is a company located in Chugwater, Wyoming, which that's a real place, by the way. It sounds made up, but it very much is not. Uh, I-25 runs through it. I have definitely stopped there for gas on my way to Yellowstone before. But what Moen Chemical is announcing to the world here is that they have developed a way to solve the ozone problem, uh, the problem of the chemical depletion of the ozone that was such a big deal in the 1980s. And what they're going to do is pump some other chemicals into the air to make new ozone, and absolutely nothing is going to go wrong with that plan, (laughs) right? And uh, that's where we enter the story. The first character we meet is Mr. Moen, who's the owner and the operator of Moen Chemical. It is just moments before the chemical repair for the ozone layer is meant to begin. 
and he's hesitating because he's worried that there will be unintended consequences, that they haven't done enough testing, essentially. And he even orders research, his his research division, that is, to test for a few more things. But it turns out that he's too late, and uh, even without his approval, the chemical launch has already begun, and there are blue streams shooting into the air even now, and he looks out the window. So we learned a lot in this opening that is going to matter, but most important is Moen's family. He has an adult daughter named Sally, and he also has an ex-wife. And this scene here, this opening scene, I mean, this is a masterclass in how to open a story. It really is. I mean, Connie Willis just continues to astonish me. In the introduction to the collection, she mentions a time she taught at Clarion West and revealed some writing techniques that she'd used in... I don't know, one of her stories that the class was studying or she was using it as an example of creative writing or something like that. And a student said in response to the the class she was teaching and the story that she she was uh, commenting on, they said, I thought you were a good writer, but it's just a lot of tricks. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really funny comment. It's funny that the student didn't know that good writing is like a good magic trick. And in that sense, I think Connie Willis is just an expert of close-up magic, you know, to follow the metaphor a little too far here. <laughs> but th- but this is a great opening to the story. I'm already interested in the characters and the world they're in and the conflicts that are going to come about as a result of their actions. And another thing that Connie Willis crams into the opening here is the fascination or uh, a fixation on the use of language. And I want to point out the language that she uses in the press release. It's full of corporate nonsense and it really lacks clarity or at least it really lacks any sort of clear communication. I'm going to read one sentence from the press release uh, to, to demonstrate what I'm talking about here. This is this is what it says. It says, according to project directors Bradley McAfee and Lynn Saunders, non-utilizable Hydrobonaceous substances will be propulsively transferred to stratospheric altitudinal locations, where photochemical decomposition will result in triatomic allotropism and form and formation of benign bicarbonaceous precipitates. I mean, that, that's one sentence. It's a run-on sentence. It's impenetrable in terms of <laughs> meaning, unless you want to look anything up. It's a press release, which meant which means it's for like a. A public audience. And it's really written to obscure information rather than explain exactly what's going on. And I think that's something that really that Willis really has in mind here in the story and her her fascination with language. Yes, language is going to be the, the central theme, the central motif of this story. I've got to go back to this uh, this tale from Clarion West that you've got, because I love this. It's absolutely hilarious. But there is you know, some embedded wisdom there, right? I mean, I think the first step for learning how to do anything is discovering that the process for doing that thing is not actually magic, that there's a technique to it. And maybe that's you know doing actual stage magic or something, but also <laughs> writing. Also, like frankly, carpentry and car repair and coding and all the things that people do, right? None of that is magic. It is all technique. But if you don't know how it works, it looks like magic. And, uh, you know, admitting your own ignorance, I guess, is the first step uh, towards towards wisdom, I will say. Actually, someone else said that. I just don't know who. Yeah, I, I love this story as well. I have a few more things to say just about this opening because, because you're right to say that it is masterful. And uh, I want to comment on what you said about Moen's concern, Mr. Moen's concern about unintended consequences. His opening line of dialogue is about whether or not Walter Hunt would have invented the safety pin if he knew that punks 
would stick them through their cheeks and stuff. Uh, And this anxiety follows Mr. Moen throughout the story, and he's particularly frustrated when he asks why the sky is turning blue, which is a a funny sort of question, I think, (laughs) and gets a jargony response back from research. He wants to be told in English, really in in layman's terms. Um, But Willis, again, is clearly interrogating the question of, of jargon or the use of jargon or specialized language in society. And we're going to take that up in the discussion. And as you pointed out, also another of Moen's core concerns is the well-being of his daughter, Sally. And that that's also developed throughout the story. This idea of unintended consequences, I think, is really well established early on. But also in this brief opening, Willis has a real concern for norms, uh, for normative practices. And and she's not necessarily attacking the other, like punks, but that the things we do could lead others to harm. And, and that even goes for the way that we use language and the way it impacts other people that could lead to their harm or lack of understanding or lack of ability to be known or know us as well. And we see in the character of Moen's ex-wife, uh, this hyper focus on uh, like a justice aspect of this question of language uh, or like a a humanity aspect. I don't know. She's an interesting character. She doesn't get a lot of page. uh, She doesn't get a lot of uh, word count in this story, but all of this is caught up and it's all presented in the opening of the story that really opens up the story, especially on a, on a second reading. Right. Mr. Moen's ex-wife is really an an activist, but she changes what her cause is rather frequently. So she's not devoted to any one particular thing. She either changes with her, just as her interests change, or maybe in response to certain fads or something like that, which I I think that's something we'll end up taking up in the discussion as well. But something that really does interest me about Mr. Moen and his relationship with, with language and particularly with scientific jargon is that he is the owner and operator of a chemical company, but does not seem to actually have a PhD in chemical engineering. He doesn't seem to actually know very much about chemical engineering <laughs> at all, which that's fine. Perhaps he just had some some money and started this as a company and he hires people who know how to do that stuff. You know, who knows like how that actual business arrangement works, but we're just living so much in an age where we think that, uh, that, that, tech companies, engineering companies, and so on are started by people who are geniuses at the thing and get venture capital to do it. But that's clearly not what's going on here. And this just this is just, you know, from another era is really what I'm trying to point out. Yeah, absolutely. Though that that is also a kind of myth, uh, because there is a, a certain kind of business genius or uh, pitching that's a big part of getting cap capital to of getting venture capital that's about the formation of narratives that kind of eschews the the technical in a sense because people who have money aren't necessarily technical expertise don't necessarily have technical expertise and this is the last thing i want to point out before we move on here <laughs> i know the open there's a lot that willis is doing in the opening as we said but the last thing i want to point out here is that uh as moen is looking out his office window at the smokestacks pluming this blue whatever into the sky, there's a McDonald's sign that Moan can see from his office window that's in front of the smokestacks of the chemical company. And uh, there's another small motif of the story that Willis is 
engaging with uh, or writing about, which is the corporate intrusion of the landscape. And I don't know if we're going to bring up every example of that happening. Probably not. But we will want to keep it in mind for the discussion. Yeah, and these are details that we have seen in Connie Willis before, even just the, the handful of, of Christmas stories that we've we've talked about. Well, Mr. Moen is really only a background character in this story, and so what we need to do now is meet two of our three principal characters. We're going to meet Brad McAfee and Henry Ulrich. Uh, Brad is one of the lead engineers on the Ozone Project. He was mentioned in the, the press release. That's the epigram that you, you read, Brandon. Uh, but he's also a scoundrel. He's ambitious. He actually wants to run Moen Chemical someday, and he thinks that the best way to do that is to marry the boss's daughter, to marry Sally, who we're going to meet later. And Brad has an entire scheme for this that he has mapped out on a computer program that definitely will never, ever be discovered by anyone else. So don't worry about that. That's not going to become a plot point later. And uh, for some reason, the scheme involves romantic relationships with almost every woman who works at Moen Chemical. And and currently, he has three fiancés at the company. Uh, They don't know about each other, of course. And they do things to, to help him. Uh, One of the fiancés is the co-director of the Ozone Project, but she's on her way to the airport to fly to the East Coast to deal with her mother's divorce. So two things here. Uh, Brad is now erasing her name from all the project documents so that he will get all the credit. And two, Brad is incredibly lucky. Uh, Things just always seem to work out for him, sometimes in the most bizarre ways. And here in this section, right, what we're presented with as being the evidence of that luck is the fact that this woman suddenly has to leave town just in time for him to be able to to, to do this, to erase, uh, to, to take her credit from her. All right, so that is Brad McAfee. Uh, now we have to meet Ulrich Henry. Henry's both Brad's co-worker and his roommate. Uh, everyone at the company lives in housing that is provided at the site because Chugwater proper is just a, a rinky-dink town. It doesn't have enough housing for thousands of employees. And Henry's not an engineer. He, he recently graduated from college with an English degree. And he also doesn't approve of Brad's schemes, or really just Brad at all. And he also doesn't approve of the way that business people, and and also maybe engineers and scientists, are altering the English language, uh, doing things like using interface as a verb and using support as an adjective. And Henry doesn't really know what his job is or why he was hired three months ago. Officially, he's the company linguist, but he seems to mostly just hang around and fill out forms trying to get his own apartment so that he doesn't have to live with Brad. He doesn't really have actual duties. All right, so that's Auric Henry, and now we can get the, the plot going here. So uh, it's time for Brad to begin the, the last phase of his plan, uh, which is to say that it is time to move on Sally Moen, and he's going to start that tomorrow at the press conference where he knows that Sally will be in attendance. And Henry's going to be there as well because Mr. Moen has asked him to, uh, but don't worry about that detail. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not going not to come back later. So Henry does not hide his disdain for Brad in this conversation, but Brad thinks that really this is all just a, a symptom, right? That, that Henry's discontent here is all just a symptom of the fact that he needs a girlfriend of his own, and he's really good at that, so he's going to help. Now, apparently, the program that Brad has is some kind of matchmaking software, though we don't really get all that much on that. But Brad types up a, a little blurb about how Henry is looking for a, a woman who speaks proper English. And this gets uh, printed out and it's set down on a desk where, you know, definitely isn't going to get in the wrong hands and cause any hilarious problems. 
And so, right, this is a, a great setup. Uh, we get our principal characters, we get their motivations, we get their antagonism toward each other, and we also get several plot devices to ensure absolute chaos as the story progresses. Again, it's just masterful. Right, this printout that, that Brad makes will certainly not lead to any absurd consequences or coincidences. That's not the type of story we're reading. Um, but I mean, seriously, everyone is going to fall victim to the blue moon in, in one way or another by the time the story ends. Brad is exactly the type of person I try to avoid at parties. He's, he's trying to gen- like self-generate some mode of speaking that is meant to, I don't know, elicit another's interest because it's strange. Like, it's very affected, but really it's just empty talk. I'm sure Willis had a lot of fun in writing this Brad character because Brad speaks almost entirely in made-up idioms. And it's hilarious to read, but I think if you had to deal with this person in real life, uh, they would probably just grate on your nerves because he's such a tryhard, it's unbearable. Right. I, he's he's trying to sound like he's from the American South and in particular from a rural area of the American South. So he's got, I think, what we would probably characterize as a drawl. Uh, he pronounces words differently than everyone else around him does. But yeah, he's also got these crazy idioms, like these weird similes and metaphors that he's totally making up. And I think probably my favorite of them is the simile that would be like a raccoon romancing uh, a polecat. Uh which is, that's not an idiom. He's made that nope. up. No one's ever said that before, but that's the kind of thing that he is. That's, that's how he sounds. That's what he's saying. Yeah. And it's, it's funny to read. And Willis gives us just enough to give us a sense of this character, but she doesn't plague the story with this really ultimately grading uh, use of made up idioms. I mean, when you hear a new idiom, you have to guess what it might be referring to or what it might mean. And certainly Willis is a master here of creating made-up idioms because I never like struggled to know what Brad was talking about. Um, but it's like uh, it's something that you have to use sparingly. And I think Willis uses it perfectly in this story. And apart from that, it's a technique that makes us immediately sympathetic to Ulrich Henry, even though Ulrich is, is really just a, a grumpy dude, uh, basically. But we're, <laughs> we're on his side because of how unbearable Brad is. And when we learn more about Brad, we discover that his, you know, quote unquote, homespun language is really just a cover for his awfulness. His plan is to move through the company women and use them and their positions in the company in order to somehow end up marrying Sally Moen and then also become the president of the company. He's got a spreadsheet of some sort or a computer program called Project Sally, which like you name a document like that, taxes or boring stuff. You don't, name it, <laughs> you don't name it Project Sally, you know? Like, if somebody found that, you're done. And he wants to marry Sally, as we've said, to become the head of the company. He's engaged to three women. You know, we've, we've talked about that. And, and it just disgusts Ulrich. And the fact that Brad thinks that he's not doing anything wrong. Ulrich just needs a girlfriend in order to be distracted from how, you know, not really awful Brad is, is uh, just a testament to Brad's terribleness as a human being and and brad is like so disgusting he even tries to pass off one of the fiancés he's going to dump on ulrich when she gets back from a trip he's like yeah you can be her rebound guy uh brad's an awful human being glenn you also pointed out the number of plot devices that are already in place in just a few pages into the story and it's awesome willis is able to combine character introduction with ex with exposition and plot mechanics, and it's seamless. It's absolutely incredible. I, I 
always learned so much about the mechanics of writing from Willis about audience engagement. I mean, she's just a master. I'm I'm really in awe of her skills. I am too. I don't want to write the types of stories that Connie Willis writes, but still reading them make me feel just wholly like not up to the task of writing anything. She just is so good at this that I, I just could never plot this way. I could never write at the, with this this level of, of pacing. And she's so good at dialogue in ways that I just would never be. She, it's just, it's awe-inspiring to, to read these stories. And, uh, I, and I regret that I wasn't able to take that Clarion West class with her. I don't know. Maybe that'll be an opportunity that we can have again someday if the world ever recovers. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I'd love to get to Clarion West at some point. I got to work harder on my uh, portfolio, I suppose, first. <laughs> yes, I think we, we, we all do. Well, as uh, as people have probably guessed, Sally Moen is the third principal character of the story. So now we get a section from her perspective. Uh, it's Thanksgiving, by the way. I should have said that earlier, but it's Thanksgiving. And so she's home from school and she's come home a day early in order to attend this press conference. She's here now, and she's on the phone with her father's secretary, who is trying to give her the details about the press conference. And they're also chatting about Sally's life. And everyone apparently keeps asking Sally about her love life, and she just finds it exhausting. Uh, In fact, her her father seems obsessed with whether she has found a husband yet, uh, though Sally does understand that this is all rooted in the fact that her mother is awful. And so her father worries that Sally is going to make a similar bad choice in, in choosing a partner. But still, everyone keeps asking, and the answer is always the same. She meets a lot of nice young men, but she has nothing in common with them. They all speak strange dialects like big business or computer or bachelor on the make. Oh, if only she could find someone who speaks proper English. And of course, we've heard that before from someone else in this story. So right on cue, the secretary accidentally emails Sally the HR file on Ulrich Henry rather than the press release she said she was going to send. And Sally's really curious about why her father hired a linguist with an English degree to work at his chemical factory in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. But at any rate, she knows where Ulrich lives now, and it happens to be on the way between the house and the office, and so she stops, and she looks up at Ulrich Henry's window. Also, the moon is getting blue. So really, all of that is just the plot set up. We've got two people who are romantically interested in each other, but they just don't know it yet, and we've got a villain who is trying to interfere, and we've got some family concerns going on, and it really is quite Shakespearean, and Now that we've got all of the setup done, we are ready for Act 2 now, right? We're ready to let all of these plot components out into the the world here. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Shakespeare, I was convinced at this point in the story, uh, the first time I read it, that we were going to be in a mistaken identity type of farce where Sally would think (laughs) Brad was Ulrich and he'd use like less idiomatic or jargony language or steal Ulrich's language in order to convince her to fall in love with him or something. I I don't know. That plot writes itself. I would read that story also (laughs) if that was the one Willis had written. Fortunately, though, the story is is far more absurd than that. It's caught up with with a a kind of a different motive of farce than the mistaken identity one. Uh, Something interesting here about the language or the speaking English uh, ideas that Willis is engaging with in this story, the the characters that we root for in the story all have a suspicion of people who change jargons based on the fads that they're involved with. And we're going to have to ask why that is the case in the discussion. But as a note, you know, for me as a reader, I think this comes across a little clumsily in this story. 
And that's only because I'm comparing it to somebody like George Saunders, who I think has really cornered the market on this sort of critique of corporate speak and professional jargon. Or maybe just using, or maybe just the way that George Saunders can use jargon to signify uh, group identity in, in a strange way. Um, and this story has, this story really reminded me that these ideas about, uh, Corporate language or language programming as part of mass media have been on people's minds for for quite a long time. People who are paying attention to the way that language changes, and I and I really appreciate uh, Willis's engagement with it. It's actually not clumsy in the story, as I said. I'm just comparing it to somebody who has absolutely <laughs> mastered this type of engagement. Right. If this had gone the route of of mistaken identity, of, of sort of appropriating, of Brad appropriating Ulrich Henry's identity, I mean, that would have gotten us into sort of, a, I don't know, Twelfth Night territory or something like that. And I would read that story. So, Brandon, I think that you should write it. But of course, we have to have a speculative fiction element going on here. So it is that is not the device that's going to happen. Right, exactly. There's one more thing I want to point out about this section as well. There's there's more about corporate intrusion on the natural landscape and Sally's mom's endless activism uh, in this section. There's also a little more about the moon turning blue, as you pointed out, uh, and that's because of the diffraction of light caused by particulates in the air. This has actually happened before. I think it happened when Krakatoa blew up, uh, you know, whenever that happened. <laughs> I should have written that down, but I didn't. Um, but at this story... At this point in the story, when I was reading it, I was looking up where the phrase once in a blue moon came from, and there was a ton of information on the origins of the phrase, but I'm not going to get into it because Connie Willis is not Jean Wolfe, and she's going to actually give us a a more than satisfactory explanation of how she's using the phrase (laughs) in the story, but I was in full like wolf research mode uh, when I came across it and forgot that Connie Willis is writing something that audiences can just engage with simply, though she does have some serious issues on her mind. Yeah, it's so true. I have used my uh, access to the Serious Business Oxford English Dictionary far more for the Gene Wolfe podcast than I have ever used it for my actual scholarship, right? <laughs> but we don't have to be in that type of mode for for Connie Willis. Well, as the, the story gets going, the first thing that we notice is a series of strange and unfortunate coincidences. Mr. Moen is having a particularly bad morning at home where everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Electronics stop working. He scalds himself with hot water. He steps on a light bulb and uh, it just keeps going, right? That's actually not even the most absurd thing. And it feels a little bit as if the universe is conspiring to keep him from getting to the press conference. And indeed, he does end up calling his secretary to cancel the, the conference. Brad McAfee, our our villain, isn't having quite as bad a time of it, but still, something unlucky has happened to him as well. His fiancée actually missed her plane back east and has undone some of Brad's hard work in getting sole credit for the ozone replacement project. But because Brad's luck is not nearly as bad as Mr. Moen's is, at least not right now, he has been able to redo that work, Uh, but this is thanks to his other fiancée. Still, though, uh, perhaps his good luck is coming under some pressure. That's uh, what we're supposed to infer here anyway. And one of the things that we see happening is that the secretary has discovered that at least two women at the company think they are engaged to marry Brad. And so she is now on the case. Sally and Ulrich, likewise, are also about to fall prey to an unbelievable coincidence. 
Sally is walking by Ulrich's building again. Uh, but, you know, remember, it's on the way, so she's not stalking him. But she notices a piece of paper stuck in a tree outside his window. Uh, so she decides that she should climb the tree and get the paper so that she can use it as an excuse to go knock on his door. And look, I mean, you know, we've all been there. <laughs> you know, usually this is high school. Like, why are you, you don't really need to go by my locker during this passing period, but suddenly you are every every day this week. We've all been there. Yeah, this reminded me of like, uh, brought me way back to like fifth grade where I had uh, like a crush on, on one of my classmates. And I had just like a piece of paper and just was like sitting around with it thinking like, what if I convinced her she dropped it? Or like I had to go to her house or give her back this paper. <laughs> it was just like, it's such a funny thing. Uh, such a funny notion. And, and Willis captures it here uh, in a way that reminded me of my own uh, cringy attempts to court a a young woman in middle school. (laughs) (laughs) But things are actually really going to work out here for Sally because she gets the paper and it it turns out to be the blurb that Brad McAfee wrote about what Ulrich is looking for in a woman. It says, wanted, young woman who can generate language. And we'll get to what that means in a moment. I can't deal with that now because... Of course, right? As has to happen. Just as Sally is reading this, Ulrich Henry is walking under the tree. And also, just at this exact same time, the branch breaks and Sally falls on top of him, right? It's classic. Now, naturally, they don't say anything to each other and Ulrich doesn't know who she is, but they just start making out. And when they come up for air and actually do say a few things to each other, Sally is not speaking quite right. And here are some examples of what she says. The moon blues. I fall down of the tree. You catched me with your face. Uh, and she also says, I hiding in the tree for cause people point you with their faces when you English oddishly. <laughs> Which is just an <laughs> awesome thing to say. I, I hadn't really thought through saying that out loud before, but it's, that's brilliant. And uh, what she is doing here is generating language, which is to say that she's imagining what a future development of English would be like if certain rules changed. So, uh, for example, changing caught to catched is simply making an irregular verb regular. And uh, as a language nerd, I'm really interested in this, but we can talk more about it in the discussion, I suppose, because we've really got some more plot in this section and then still a lot more rom-com to go. Uh, For one thing, Sally is not doing this intentionally. I mean, this is a a real thing that she studies in college. uh, And in fact, it's what she's focusing on in college. But this language is just coming out of her. And two, because Ulrich is into this and Brad McAfee knows it, and because Brad also knows that Ulrich is going to try to warn Sally Moen about him, in this moment, while this is going on, Ulrich Henry assumes that this is someone that Brad has hired or otherwise tricked into ambushing him so that he will miss the press conference and not be able to warn Sally. And so he storms off without ever learning that this is Sally and that she's never met Brad And, right, the question we have to ask right now is, will they ever figure it out and get together? Right, or won't they? (laughs) (laughs) But regarding uh, Brad and the the fiancé plot in this story, Moan's secretary, Janice, is is starting to put the pieces together. And Janice is really a purely mechanical figure in this story in terms of plot. Like, you needed to have this character in order to compact the story the way that Willis does and and have this kind of fifth business take place in the story. But Janice is still a good character. She has this great kind of ride dialogue and this great way about her. And it's 
a real testament to Wills' writing, as we keep on pointing out, that even the mechanical characters, the purely functional characters in the story, feel animated. They feel real in some way. Uh, but it's also just fun to see this plot unravel in the background of the story. Yeah, I love Janice. Her her key attribute is that she sighs all the time. Like everything she says is with a sigh. And she really functions to to stand outside of the rom-com that everyone else, including Mr. Moen, is involved in. And so in that way, she's really kind of the chorus. Like she's like a Greek chorus here in this in this play. I mean, Shakespeare used a chorus from time to time as well, that she's almost an, an audience surrogate who's watching all of the ridiculous things happening and is trying to restore some kind of normal order to things. Yeah, it's it's a great use of that trope of the chorus or, you know, in, in play, another term for it that I used was fifth business, which is the character who is there to ensure the plot keeps moving forward, but doesn't really have anything else to do as a character. Uh, you're right to point out this Sally is doing this language generation intentionally and she's she's in a bit of a daze when she falls from the tree and then Ulrich kisses her which leaves her really discombobulated as well but I think she's speaking this way but it's partially out of a daze but also because she thinks it will be impressive to Ulrich it just leaves him confused on some level though interested because (laughs) as you pointed out uh Sally's made some interesting linguistic moves and Ulrich does find that interesting but we do know that Sally has seen Ulrich's picture and she already knows that it's him that she has fallen on so the plot does really thicken here uh we have some real irony in play these are all insane coincidences by the way this story is just an absurd comedy where all the contingencies continue to stack up (laughs) on one another until they pile over uh and somehow fall in a neat pattern that we can appreciate i love plots like this I do too. I mean, this is just a, a delight. I mean, romp, which is not really a word that I like to use very often, but is definitely how you have to describe this. It's just, it's so fast paced. It's so fun. It's lighthearted and, and whimsical while also packing some pretty serious punches, which will uh, elucidate more, I think, in the, the discussion. Well, right now we get a, a few more comedic scenes with incidents of bad luck happening. And Mr. Moen, and, and maybe not entirely seriously, but Mr. Moen is even wondering if the ozone project might be causing all of these strange things. The secretary, uh, Janice, uh, she is continuing to accidentally compile evidence of Brad McAfee's nefarious plan to woo Sally Moen. But Brad doesn't realize that his days are numbered, and he thinks that things are going awesome for him, even as we, the audience, know otherwise. And in particular, the fact that Mr. Moen never succeeded in canceling the press conference, but also never made it to the press conference, meant that Brad got to be the star with the reporters, and one of the reporters has turned out to have been one of Sally's college roommates. And as Brad is recounting all of this to Ulrich, he uses the phrase, once in a blue moon. Now, we've all heard this expression, right? It means that something is an unusual coincidence, but it has its origins in the idea that these types of things happen when the moon appears blue, which itself happens infrequently, except for the year without a summer when Krakatoa blew up, which was, I don't know the date either, Brandon, but it was sometime in the early 19th century. (laughs) And this phrase, the use of this phrase here, reminds Ulrich of Sally's statement, the moon blues. And the moon has been looking blue, and maybe that's strange, so... He looks it up, and it turns out that the moon really does sometimes turn blue in certain atmospheric conditions. And guess what? The chemicals they are pumping into the air to repair the ozone are creating those precise atmospheric conditions. And so, indeed, 
the moon does blue. And so now at this point, Ulrich wonders if this folk saying might actually have some truth to it, right? Is the blue moon the cause for the crazy and hilarious coincidences going on at the factory? Now, he thinks so, and it is Mr. Moen's instinct, too. And so now Ulrich needs to resolve this issue, right? He needs to get to Mr. Moen and convince him to turn off the ozone project. So on his way to find Mr. Moen, Ulrich encounters Sally Moen in the parking lot, uh, though he still doesn't know who she is. But he apologizes for yelling at her. Uh, He knows now that she is genuine and he doesn't want to lose her again. So he asks her to wait for him at his apartment, which, of course, is also Brad's apartment. Now, one of Brad's fiancés is also on her way to that apartment because she can't get him on the phone. Uh, The other fiancé, who was stranded at the airport, is also on her way there. And we also know that the reporter he just met is also heading there. So... The setup here is a lot of women are descending on Brad's apartment just as his luck is starting to fade. And that is going to propel us into Act 3 when everything is going to come crashing down and and colliding together. Yeah, and the way Willis is able to resolve all of this stuff in like 30 pages is just remarkable. (laughs) I love the way that Willis reverses the cause and effect of folklore here as well. It's almost as if she's saying, if we could just turn the moon blue, we'd have lots of changing luck all over the place. We'd have, uh, you know, uh, we'd be able to adjust the probabilities of and statistical chances in our world by changing the way the moonlight refracts in our atmosphere. And that's just a, a great technique. It's another trick, I guess, you can use as a writer is reverses the reversal of cause and effect. Uh, but what I love about what she's doing here is that She's given us an organization full of scientists, some of whom may be noticing strange things going on, odd probabilities exerting themselves. Some might be like Brad, who believes his luck is just going on and on, his good luck. But it takes an English major to crack the case. And it it really (laughs) reminds me of the Lucha Libre episode of Angel, where Spike is able to figure out how to kill the bad guy because Spike is a a poet. He has a sense of poetic symmetry. And by the time the scientists would have caught up with the liberal arts major's intuitions, I mean, God only knows what would have happened. (laughs) It's it's a really fun addition to a story that's already in some ways about the value of communicating clearly. Right. And the value of a humanities education, right? Every company should have an English major, a random English major, just just hanging around with nothing really particular to do, except maybe observe things and and chime in every (laughs) once in a while. Yeah. I'll tell you how that works out. It doesn't work out great. Uh, That's been my experience. (laughs) All right. Well, we need to catch up with the the sci-fi part of the plot first. So Ulrich gets to Mr. Moen's office, where Mr. Moen is mostly just trying to hold still so that he doesn't accidentally break everything. And Ulrich explains that the particulates in the atmosphere are doing something to the laws of probability. He doesn't know what that is, right? Because he was just an English major, after all. Uh, but he knows that this is happening, right? He he knows this intuitively. And it is going to turn out to be true. And so this is kind of a Connie Willis version of a Philip K. Dick story, which might actually be my favorite version of a Philip K. Dick story, by the way. <laughs> and uh, while he's here, Ulrich sees a photo of Sally and finally knows who he's been making out with. Uh, We also learn, we the audience uh, also learn here, because we are inside Mr. Moen's perspective in this scene, that this is the whole reason that Mr. Moen hired Ulrich, right? He wants him to marry Sally and to be his vice president in charge of saying what you mean, right? That's going to be the the formal title that he will have. 
So, all right, it is time for everything to resolve now, and it's all going to happen at the apartment building. A number of the women Brad is involved with end up in the elevator together, and, well, you know, they figure it out, right? In the other elevator, Ulrich and Sally end up together, and it doesn't go very well because they are really speaking past each other and, and getting upset about it. But Ulrich takes a step back and starts to explain, though this is the last that we actually see of them. And the final scene here, the whole novella, is Brad getting really excited that Time Magazine wants to do an article about him. But he's gotten a call from Mr. Moen, and he needs to hurry over to the office. And the question we're asking is, what happens when the elevator opens up? And, of course, he runs into the women he's wronged and who have figured him out. And that is it. That's the end of the plot, though we do get a press release at the end, another press release. This time, it serves as an epilogue. And this tells us that the Ozone Project has been stopped and that Sally and Ulrich are engaged and that Ulrich has been made vice president in charge of language effectiveness documentation. And now that is the end of the story. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this story. I love the way that Willis ends it by trusting the reader to understand how all of these things work out and just giving us what we really want, which is essentially a a happily ever after. The bad guys are punished, Brad is punished by Sally's mom, no less, who is kind of a a justice-obsessed woman. I almost want to use the word harpy, though I really shouldn't. Uh, But she is a really intense uh, woman who who gets involved in these justice fads and expects everybody around her to change as a result. And she's been given the file by by Janice. So she's in the elevator as well, uh, aware that somebody's trying to harm her daughter. Uh, And we can just imagine how that tirade would go uh, by Sally's mom. The good guys get married and have a happy family with Mr. Moen as the the patriarch here. The only question left hanging for me, and and maybe it's the question I want to kick off the discussion with, is with everybody's probabilities leading toward uh, justice or love or some kind of other virtuous balance and here I'm referring to the the classical virtues and the theological virtues. Justice is one of the classical virtues. Love is one of the three theological virtues. Why do you think it was that Mr. Moen was so badly punished throughout the story? What did he do that caused him to be nearly killed by the blue moon? I mean, his misfortunes really take up a, a fair part of the text. Well, I think that part of what's going on is that it, it's not just restoring uh, maybe a balance or, or maybe enforcing a, a sort of positive turn to the universe. There's there's some real specificity to what is happening. And I think for Mr. Moen, although stepping on a light bulb and you know cutting yourself while you're shaving and all of the, the things that happen to him are not things that any of us think particularly want to have happen to us you know, ever and certainly not all at once. What he wants most of all is for Sally to find a good partner, a better partner than he found for himself. He also is looking for someone to inherit his business. And I guess that's not going to be Sally for whatever reason. And so uh, that's another thing that he's looking for in a potential partner for her. And that is what he wants. That's his biggest concern. And and him re- injuring himself repeatedly, or the universe doing this to him, the blue moon doing this to him, is in service of that goal that he wants. So I think even if he were presented with you know, the story from this perspective, the way that we were, he would say that that was worth it. 
I certainly think that's a part of it and, and a big part of it. I also wondered whether or not it was some sort of expression of his own carelessness. The things that happen, cutting himself while shaving, uh, stepping on a light bulb that he broke, losing a glove, dropping his keys, uh, his pencil breaking, all these things uh, could be described as sort of acts of carelessness. So they're very intentional. And I wondered if... Willis was saying something then about Moen's carelessness as a leader of this chemical corporation being the cause of all of this and him maybe being punished by it on on some level. Yeah, that that definitely could be. I see where you can I, I see where you're going with, with that, right? Because there's certainly a sense that maybe he hasn't always thought things through very well, like the project here that's blueing the moon, for example. But also the the most important thing that we know about him is that he picked the the wrong person to be his partner, at least the wrong person for him, right? And that he regrets that decision, wishes that he had done it better. This is uh, clearly a real sad point in his life, a sad part of his life. And all of that might point to, you know, not just sort of not thinking things through, but maybe a, a type of carelessness where he's maybe not the most observant person. Yeah. Well, that's the only plot thread left dangling for me in this story. Let's get into some of the more crunchy topics that Willis has smuggled into this delightful rom-com. The first thing I want to talk about is the problem-solving skills as they're presented in this story. And really, it's a dichotomy. And most of what she's... put into the story are these kinds of dichotomies. And, the, you know, the first one here then is the STEM versus liberal arts problem, problem solving skills. Uh, I think Willis is critical here of a, of a science only approach to problem solving, especially when that approach is derived entirely from self-interest or profiteering, which is, I think we can say a lot of what um, scientific research has been like in this country. They're are maybe some pure scientists who are really researching uh, for the good of all, but even in the university setting, uh, research grants and things like that are motivated by making money or esteem for the university. It's not to say science is wrong. It's just that it's been caught up in... um, it's just been caught up in other things. Uh, there's no pure science, just like there's no pure language, maybe, is another way of putting it. And But we really see what I'm talking about most clearly in the way that Willis has presented the character Brad, who is willing to risk the world in order to become the president of a company. He's also willing to use a computer program to set him up with women and identify the optimal way to use other people, essentially. And then we see Ulrich and Sally as counterpoints to this. They're concerned about what other people think, not just of themselves. They're not just thinking like, what do people think of me? But also in general. And like, how does language, how does the language that I use affect the people that I interact with? It's a maybe an empathetic position. Um, they're thinking, what kind of narrative are people building about me? What kind of narrative am I building about them. This is also a cure part of romances and what makes the romance or rom-com plot so fun is the way that the lover and beloved kind of project ideals onto one another, which can also have its negative side, a downside. But Ulrich is able to fix this problem um, of the of the moon turning blue 
because narrative is a mode with which he engages with the world. I'm wondering, Glenn, if you saw any additional elements of this dichotomy in the story or uh, any critiques of what I've just been going on about. Uh, but really, what what do you make of Willis's critique here of this dichotomy? One of the things that I like about it is that Willis is not necessarily advocating for something here. She's just pointing out. She's just making observations about the the world. We see her do this all the time. I, th- I think the the Christmas stories that we've read so far have been from the early '90s, so you know, eight years, maybe even a decade later than this. Really, kind of having gone through uh, the Reagan years, I guess, and and the uh, yuppification, I guess, of the corporate world. I think is maybe what we. Would would say about that era. And she's observing this as someone who is outside of that world. And I don't know, maybe, and, and maybe observing some of that through pop culture. But I will also say, on the other hand, that, that Connie Willis is married to a physicist, a physics professor at, at UNC, the University of Northern Colorado. Uh, so uh, maybe there's some poking fun at her husband here going on <laughs> as, as, as well. I think this is something we always do when we think about Connie Willis stories, when we reread Connie Willis stories, is think about a very local, a very uh, nearby audience that she has for some of these uh, some of these stories, the kind of objects of of uh, uh, lighthearted and, and humorous derision here. But yeah, I think that this is a real concern of the Cold War world, the sort of rise of of a technocracy, and the leaving behind of uh, of humanity's education and the leaving behind of uh, even just humanity's interests. Right, that even. Our, our hobbies and our pursuits. And obviously that's not true for anyone who's listening to this. This is a whole podcast network devoted to people who uh, love reading as much as we do. But that stuff has been being driven out of the marketplace of both ideas and I think even of entertainment for a long time. And, and that's something that I think Willis is, is pointing out here, that when we lose that, we definitely lose something, right? That, that someone who's able to take a step back from the, the problem and uh, make some inferences and some intuitions and to draw on another area of knowledge and another area and type of wisdom and type of thinking is valuable. Yeah, I I think that's right too. I really I don't think she's being unfair or going especially hard against the sciences here, the value of science. Um Brad is is a character in this story and reads like a character in a story, not as like an archetype to uh, attack or a straw man to hold all you know be a container for all types of criticism brad's awfulness is is really his the way that he uses other people and lacks empathy for them not his being a scientist uh but it's it's something that's on her mind and i and i think you said it really well about how the ability to draw on uh, a kind of a general knowledge or engage with problems from outside the box, which has become its own kind <laughs> of uh, paradigmatic corporate jargon term, um, is is useful still. And that people are of use if people are not just useful to our society because they're able to solve a problem using the scientific method. In fact, they might be missing something if that's the only way that they engage with problems. Well, and and just speaking here now in my capacity as someone who uh, is an instructor in the humanities at a university, I work in a history department, 
you know, this is a real problem that I see in education the way it exists now. Uh, I do get to teach actual history majors. You know, history major is still a pretty big major on campuses, even as universities, at least in our public sense of what universities and college education is for, has been has shifted towards uh, giving you a piece of paper that lets you get a job uh, rather than preparing you to be a citizen or just a person out in the world. Uh, nonetheless, those of us who are teaching classes at the university, right? The professors are still oriented that way, right? That we know that the education that we are trying to give to our students isn't about preparing them to enter the workforce. It's not about preparing them to have a job. It's about equipping them with the necessary skills and uh, abilities and, and also attitudes to be a good citizen of you know whatever country you're in, uh, but also maybe a good global citizen as well, but also just generally to be a good person in the world. And one of those things, right, is critical thinking. That is taught in science classes for sure. I mean, if you're a physics major, a biology major, an engineering major, you are learning how to think critically. You are learning how to solve problems and uh, apply a, a specific and particular methodology to problems. But the humanities then has different methodologies for that that are equally valuable. And one of the reasons that we have, at least the idea of a university in the United States, is that you will get a well-rounded education, that you will have a requirement to take several courses in the humanities, even if you are not majoring in a humanities discipline, even if you are majoring in engineering or science or uh, business. Because you need to learn how to think that way. Learning how to think that way equips you to do better in the world and just to be better in the world as well. And uh, I think Connie Willis has her finger on the pulse here of this move away from that type of thinking, the type of thinking that really all American public education anyway is founded on, right, for the stem growing out of the, the principles of, of John Dewey. Right. I mean, and it also teaches you how to communicate your ideas clearly when you have to write you know eight or ten or twelve or twenty pages on what somebody else has thought or what uh, makes a book good to you or you know read four books or five books in order to write a decent paper um, the the broadness of thought and the uh, expansion of vocabulary that allows you to communicate clearly rather than to obscure information is also a key part of a liberal arts education or a good liberal arts education. And, that, and that's also something that Connie Willis is talking about in this story, which is the, the jargonification. It's not a word I should <laughs> say out loud, and it's not what I should have written, uh, of language. And she is looking at these, to me, the language problems, the jargonizing of language, um, in two ways. One is kind of the rigidity that jar that using purely jargon or engaging purely or that using language that is made up of jargon or specialized language from a uh, field of study or a, disc a particular discourse or something like that is having it. It's it's a it's a rigid mode of speech. Gene Wolfe explores this brilliantly in Book of the New Sun and maybe shows ways that it's not so rigid, but still needs translation. Um, but it's still also a mode of group identity signaling that's saying, like, I've learned this language that associates me with this group, and I want to be seen as a member of this group. Uh, so it's it's a group identity issue. It's a language rigidity issue. 
And she puts that up against the way that uh, kind of our common way of speaking allows for spontaneity that Ulrich and Sally, before they even speak, can kiss one another uh, or something like that. Or the way that their ability to switch modes of language allow them to communicate effectively and get out of the kind of quagmire they're in as a result of this fake mode of using language, this language generation. Um, and it, it allows you to be an individual in a different way, even though it's very common language. It's a shared usage. Um, and I, and I wonder, Glenn, what you thought uh, that maybe this dichotomy has to do with the language generation piece in the story. Uh, the idea that we're theorizing about how language has changed instead of experiencing the changes that are already taking place with the language, with the infusion of jargon into our normal discourse. Uh, and that language is primarily used then to obscure information rather than communicate it. I probably said that in a very circular way, but just want to get your thoughts on that. I absolutely loved this idea of language generation here. And and maybe language generation was a real thing that scholars were interested in in the 1980s that I just don't know about. But I, I to my knowledge, this is something that Willis has in, invented here, this idea of language generation. I mean, it's a real thing, right? You could clearly do that. You could say, let's, uh, let's hyperemphasize one rule and then tweak another rule and think about what that language might be like. I mean, it's the same kind of thing that people like Tolkien engage in when you're inventing languages and, and so on. And we also all do it accidentally when we're learning foreign languages, also when we're learning our, our own language as kids, which is you know one of the reasons that kids speak can be so hilarious sometimes. But I love that idea. I love the way that Willis is is saying, hey, you can focus on, in your English major education, the rules of, of grammar, the rules and the, the syntax of, of the language, and think about ways that language changes over time, as, as it does, right? There's a, a version of English has been spoken for uh, over 1,500 years, but if we went back in time to the year 500, we would not be able to communicate with anybody that we encountered there. And to think about what that might be like in the future, I mean, that's a thing that science fiction writers do. It's a thing I often really dislike when they uh, actually try to have their characters speak in some, some future future language like that. But it's a thing that science fiction writers do. But, but I think that Willis is really setting that rules-based, kind of regimented way of thinking about language change next to the way that language change is actually happening in our uh, jargon-obsessed culture of the early 1980s that is still with us and I think has, has actually gotten worse, right? And saying that actually what they're doing is with, with, different, with different types of organizations and communities that have jargon, they are actually not following any specific set of rules. They're not applying one rule and disregarding another, right? It's all ad hoc. And I think the ad hocness of it is actually what is so offensive to uh, our characters in the story and maybe also to, to Connie Willis. That's an excellent point. And, and I think Willis is also looking at the way that la language generation and jargon both have their own kind of rigid rigidity uh, sally is doing this language generation thing as a way to signal to ulrich that she's in this group that he's in she's interested in what he's interested in uh in the same way that uh, 
Mr. Moen can tell when his wife is on a new crusade or has a new interest because she speaks the language of that group. And it's, I wonder what you made or if you made anything of this kind of group identity signaling versus individualism, or if you saw examples of, I don't know, I'm calling it spontaneity because I couldn't really think of a better word, but what you made of that dichotomy or if you saw it in this story at all uh, in the way that I did. There is definitely a sense in this story of a kind of tribalization around the the jargon that different types of people all share a jargon together. So there's computer people who have their computer speak. They might not know each other, right? But if you are the computer person working for company X and you're the computer person uh, working for company Y, you can get together and speak the same jargon and uh, the people at the bar next to you won't understand what you're saying. That she is looking at a kind of tribalism like that where then, yeah, we've got Sally and Ulrich who are speaking English major to each other. And, right, this is just true. I mean, if you have any kind of tech technical job. Some of the language that you have to use for that job is technical, and some of it can be totally impenetrable to outsiders. You and I have worked a job together in the military that, you know, if our our parents or our wives had ever heard us having a conversation at that job, they would not have understood a single thing that we were saying to each other. It's almost <laughs> its own language that we were speaking. That's a, a real extreme version of that. And, but then there, you know, there's business speak, which, uh, seems to use all the same types of words that English uses, but somehow uses them very differently, right? And uh, to obscure meaning, to obfuscate meaning, I think you said earlier, right? But there is a, a tribalization going on here. And the thing that we know about Sally is that she is frustrated that all of the nice young men she keeps going on dates with are not in her tribe, right? That they speak a different uh, a different jargon, a different dialect of English. And in, and in the story, a little bit that's presented as she just wants someone who speaks normally because she's offended at the encroachment of jargon in the language. But I think that you're right to look at this as a type of group identity and that we could really read this as what Sally is doing is looking for someone who shares her worldview, her outlook. And the way that she'll know that about a person is if they are speaking her jargon. Right. That's absolutely a part of it. And of course, we're all looking for people like us in some way to to group with um, because that's gives us a sense of security or comfort or a sense of community, which are so extraordinarily important to uh, the well-being of any individual human being. I'm not trying to you know fetishize individualization in some way um, because Willis is threading the needle here very well. I think I'm using the word spontaneity of language more to describe um, the ability to be surprised by somebody's language use instead of being able to know everything about them or to identify who they are or what their values are within five minutes of getting to know them because of the jargon they use that's been almost programmed into them by the way that clusters of information have begun to, uh, and mass media, uh, which was really beginning to hit big in the 1980s, have allowed people to speak in a sort of boring shorthand to one another. And I think Willis, as a writer, I think as all writers are, are interested in in the way that language and language use can surprise us. Uh, and yeah, we want to form communities around that sort of thing for sure. Um, and it's maybe not as rigid as being 
bored by a person's language use or having it grate on you like Brad's language use does within like five minutes of getting to know them. Right. And something I've been thinking about while while we've been having this conversation is wondering sort of what's the genesis for this story. We don't get any of that information in the uh, introduction to the, the short story collection that we've read this out of, which is a shame. But I could see actually this story coming out of Connie Willis finding herself starting to use some of this jargon because it's being presented to her in mass media, right? She's hearing it on the TV. Uh, phrases are being repeated in a newspaper and and so on. Of course, now for us with the internet uh, and streaming TV, I, I mean, it's just all, the, the same phrases. We're all just using the same phrases. We're getting inundated with them because I have the same reaction when I suddenly find myself using a phrase that I didn't invent that I don't even like very much that I've even potentially made fun of when I've heard, say, uh, some, you know, when I've heard it used over and over again on a TV show or in a news headline or something like that. But now I'm using it simply because it is just like in the air. And I, when I catch myself doing it, I feel dirty. Like I, I need to go take like a bleach shower, you know? And so I wonder if, if that was maybe the, the, the genesis of, uh, of this story for Connie Willis as well. Oh, it's certainly something she has on her mind. The last thing I want to talk about in the discussion is maybe the smallest part of the story, the uh, kind of motif of the corporate intrusion on the landscape. Uh, that's not just ugly buildings and maybe a place that has a beautiful landscape or a landscape that doesn't need the golden arches of McDonald's or a KFC or an Arby's. Um <laughs> Uh, but maybe how that relates to the environmental catastrophe that's taking place. And all of this is obscured, finally. All of the real truth of what's going on with these people's lives comes out when you can't see the corporate la landscape anymore. And when the environmental catastrophe is hidden, the sky is hidden, finally, by this big snowstorm that hits at the end of the story. Uh, I think Willis is trying to make some connections here. I wonder if that jumped out to you as part of the text or if you saw any connections between the intrusion of corporate buildings in the landscape, the environmental catastrophe that this, or really humanitarian catastrophe that this chemical company is uh, perpetrating, and then the way that all of the truth, all of the humanity comes out when it's hidden by this snowstorm. Well, I think we can link this up with the the, the jargon, right? And the, the tribalization of language by looking at that and also the, the construction of corporate signs, you know, McDonald's and Arby's, I think are the two, and maybe KFC as pointed out in the story as well, all over the place, right? That that what Willis can be pointing to there, they're, they're both phenomena, that they're, they're both manifestations of the same thing, which is a, a real loss of the individuality of place and also the individuality of individual persons, right? There's a real sameness that is becoming the, the vogue of the day here in the 1980s, right? That every town in America should have the same five corporate franchises there. Uh, you recognize the sign, you know where to go, even if you're a visitor, where to get a hamburger, you know, where to get, uh, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And that that's happening to the landscape, while it is also happening to our language as as well. I think that maybe that's the way that Willis is is pairing these two things together. I do want to point out a detail that we left out about the way that this sort of the about the way that the corporate signs have taken over the 
landscape around the factory is that when Moen decided to put the factory on the outskirts of Chugwater, Wyoming, he did that because, you know, I guess one, it was a good place for the factory to be, whatever those parameters are. But he wanted to, he really wanted to keep the factory isolated from the town because he was actually concerned about interfering with the life of the local inhabitants, the native inhabitants of Chugwater. He wanted to keep the factory away from them. That's part of why he built the housing at the factory. And it turns out that actually they don't want that. The town has essentially moved to the factory because the factory now is big business, right? The the factory is making money from the people it is selling chemicals to who are not near Chugwater. So money that's not from the local economy is now coming into the local economy and people from Chugwater want to get their hands on that by starting a McDonald's franchise or a KFC franchise or an Arby's franchise or whatever. And that's more important to them than continuing to live their lives in Chugwater the way that they always have. So again, this is this is an accident, right? This is an unintended consequence. In fact, it might even be Moen's carelessness, right? If we're thinking about that again, that he didn't foresee the consequences of his actions and, and really was even thinking about the problem from entirely the opposite way. That That's a really good way to, I think, summarize what's happening with the humanitarian crisis <laughs> that this factory <laughs> pumping this uh, stuff into the air is creating. Uh, that, that's a really great uh, subtle layer of this story. And I and I know storms are kind of an overused trope in stories, but um, if you use it right, not like the person, like it's raining because you're sad or there's a thunderstorm or something like that, <laughs> um, but to, to really engage with the way that a, a real storm, a genuine act of God, so to speak, uh, reveals instead of obscures. And, and the way that Willis uses this at the end of the story uh, surprised me. It's it's a trope of Walker Percy's as well, who, who I've been reading quite a lot of. And he has written a lot about um, kind of his theory of storms and communities. And it's interesting that either Willis is engaging with some... Um, thinking along the same lines, or she's read Walker Percy's essays on this sort of stuff. Oh, that's really interesting because I, I was thinking of this as kind of an inversion of Lear, where the the storm, which is a, a central part of King Lear, is there, you know, it emphasizes a lot of things that are going on, right? But King Lear is a tragedy about uh, a man who essentially loses his his children and loses himself because of some foolishness on his part as a, a father. Maybe that's one way of, of summarizing the plot of that story, I guess. But the storm is a really big part of that play. But here it does the opposite thing, right? As the storm comes in, the patriarch of the family is actually getting everything that he wants for himself, which is really to say he's getting everything that he wants for his his daughter. And so there's a kind of inversion of that there. But I was really thinking of this as you know a riff on Shakespeare. Well, that's another great insight. I, I don't have too much more to say about this story, Glenn. Did you, uh, did you have any questions or, or final comments before we head out here today? No, I think we've hit on all of the, the major themes and motifs. And you know, if we haven't, people can come let us know. I wish they would. And uh, that's a great place to stop the episode then. So that's going to do it for this episode 
I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We want to say thanks once again to our Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. This was a blast to do. It was a delightful story to read. And hey, if you would like to commission an episode for us to do, an episode where we talk about a favorite story of one of yours or a topic or a movie, a TV episode, whatever you might like us to talk about, uh, get in touch because we would love to do that for you. Yeah. Thank you so much again uh, for our supporter who commissioned this episode. As we just said, if there's anything that you'd like to talk to us about this story, join us at the Clay Temple Media Forum or on our subreddit, Clay Temple Media. Next time, we will be back to start the novel piece, which is something that we have been looking forward to for a very long time. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>